0: Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know Hey everybody welcome back to another episode of ask katie anything i am your host licensed marriage and family therapist katie morton if you're new here welcome we're glad to see you now today we have i think eight questions yeah because some of them are a little longer and you know me i like to ramble and so we'll just jump into these now if you are new and you're like hey where do i ask these questions if you are watching this on youtube you are already in the right place On my podcast YouTube channel, which is entitled Opinions That Don't Matter, it's the name of the podcast I have with my husband, Sean. You go over there and in the community tabs, when you go to the homepage of the channel, there'll be little tabs where it's like videos about, one of those tabs will say community. You check, you click on that, And on Sunday mornings, I ask all of you for your questions and you just put them in there in the comments down below those. And if there's one that's really close to yours, you know, give it a like and even leave a comment with an add on to that question, because I do my best to get through as many of them as possible. Okay, without further ado, let's just jump right into those questions. And the first one is, Katie, you've mentioned several times that a therapist shouldn't be working harder than their client. But what if they are? How do you address a client who has run out of motivation to get better? <clears throat> what if this is a client that needs to be in therapy, but has just kind of given up hope that things will even get better or that things will ever change? I know this sounds silly. It doesn't. Don't worry. And it should be something that comes naturally. But how do you find motivation to keep going? People keep asking me what needs to change in my life and how how am I motivated to change my life? And I just don't have an answer. I honestly don't even know what motivates me anymore. I've struggled with MDD, which is otherwise known as major depressive disorder, for several years and recently had a suicide attempt. I've tried finding motivation in my husband and kids, but it always falls short of motivating me to keep going. Is this just laziness? Is it part of hopelessness? I've hit a point where I don't think I will ever get better, that life will always be a struggle, where the weight of this depression will never leave me. How can you find motivation when you just don't think life is worth it anymore? Okay, I thought this was a wonderful question. <clears throat> Obviously, it got the most thumbs up. That's why it's number one. But okay, there's there's a lot of questions in here. Now, yes, a therapist should not be working harder than a patient. And if anybody's wondering what I mean by that, what that means is that when we're doing work outside of session and in session, it's important for a therapist to meet a patient where they're at and help guide them along, but not do more work than the patient's willing to put in because it's not my life that I'm trying to change, right? It's theirs. And they're trying to work on that. And if I don't give them an opportunity to work on it and try to do it all myself, it just doesn't work out. It's not good for the patient. It's really not good for the therapist. And it's really not good for the therapeutic relationship. And so Overall, that's a really unhealthy balance in therapy. And if I, as the therapist, find myself doing that, what I usually do is I talk to my patient about it and I say something to the effect of, recently, I've noticed that I am am doing more work to help you feel better than you're doing work. And we just have a conversation about it. Do you feel that way too? What's going on for you? Have things shifted recently? It's been, I was looking at my notes, it's been the last month and a half or it's been the last two months, you know, whatever it's been. I usually come in kind of knowing when this shift took place and trying to work with my patient to figure out why that shift took place, if that makes sense. And then just figuring out what we can do to come to a 50/50 split again. And obviously it's not like we're keeping track all the time, but it's like if I don't feel my patient is showing up or is wanting to put in the work, I'm going to talk to them about it and try to learn why and try to figure out what we can do to get them motivated again or what we maybe it's a medication thing, maybe it's a different type of therapy or maybe I refer them to another therapist or a higher level of care. There's a lot of things that I would do in that point or at that point. Now, it says how do you address a client who's run out of motivation to get better? Now, overall, not to just cut to the chase, but overall, it sounds like you're drowning in the symptoms of depression. And in order to get your head above water so that you can do anything in therapy or even, I don't know, feel motivated at all or not, not so hopeless because you said you had a suicide attempt. So you're feeling like nothing in life is worth it. Even your husband and children, you're like, I just can't. In order to get you out of that, we're I'm not a doctor, but I would say you need medication. And I would encourage you to talk to a psychiatrist. And if you're already on medication, it's clearly not working. And I know maybe I should try to sugarcoat that, but this is no time to sugarcoat it. You're feeling like you're drowning the symptoms. You're struggling, you're hopeless, you're, you know, attempting to take your own life. Now's not the time to, you know, pussyfoot around it. You need a different medication or a higher dosage or something higher level of care, anything like that. Because what's happening is your depression is just snuffing out everything good, any potential positive thought, stealing your motivation, stealing your energy, maybe making you even feel body aches, messing with your sleep, making it so you you can't eat when you want to eat. You're like hungry and full, your hunger fullness cues are off. And so to answer the questions towards the end, it's not laziness, it's depression. And is it part of hopelessness? Yes. Which is part of your depression and suicidal ideation, right? And of course you feel like you're never going to get better because depression doesn't allow you to see that it could get better. Feeling like your life's always going to be a struggle again, because depression like pushes out any positives that have happened and made us think that nothing positive has ever happened. But obviously you met and married your husband. I'm assuming there was a time when you were super excited about him and were in love with him. And maybe you're still in love with him. And I hope that you are, but I'm just saying that like there were those excited times and finding out you're pregnant and having your children, like there was joy in your life and there were good things that have happened. And we have to believe that those things can come back. Now, depression tells us it's not ever going to happen. And that's just part of what depression does. But I really think you should see a psychiatrist and potentially if you have insurance that allows See a different one, get another like assessment. We want to get, you know, not just one take on what's going on with us. We might need to get another opinion. And so I would encourage you to see at least one more and, you know, t- take a full inventory of the medications that you've been on. Get a copy of them from your current treatment team. Which ones have we tried? How long was I on them? all that stuff, because that's going to be really important when we go to see another psychiatrist. And not that this is like 100% effective, but a lot of people found success doing the, I think it's just a swab or you spit almost like those DNA tests, but there are tests that you do to find out what medications will work best with your system. Again, it's not a hundred percent, but it's just another thing we can try. Most insurances cover them in the States. Um, From patients whose insurance didn't, I want to say it was like a hundred dollars. I think if you have that in your budget, a hundred dollars would be well spent if this means that we can get on a medication and in three weeks we're feeling better. Um, But that's really how you get the motivation to feel like your life is worth it again. Because there's no amount of behavioral techniques that I can offer to you. There's nothing I can say to make you feel better because depression's clouding your judgment. It's taking away any hope or joy for the future. It's telling you nothing's ever going to get better and it it will get better, but I'm not going to be able to, you know, all of a sudden make you believe that we're going to have to get some medication on board so we can stop drowning in the symptoms. Okay. I hope that makes sense. I hope you know that it can and will get better. We just need to get the right support. Okay, let's move on to question number two. And let me get a drink of water here. My voice has been hoarse for the last like week because our friends Lauren and Adam came to town. And when I get excited, I like laugh really loud and I talk really loud. And I think I threw my, not threw my voice out, but what would you call it? Just like I wore it out. Like I'm talking about my voice as if it's like my back, like I threw my back out. I threw my voice out. I shouted it out. (laughs) Okay. Question number two says, hi, Katie. I struggle a lot with comparing myself to other people who seem more happy. (gasps) Joy is, or what is it? Comparison is a thief of joy. So not just happy people who seem more happy, successful, talented, and so on than me. I know the comparison is a thief of joy, but doing this is automatic to me like a reflex. Being told not to compare myself to other people is like being told to grow two inches or to learn to fly. It'd be great, but I have no idea how to do it. Do you have any suggestions on how to start addressing this? For reference, I'm a 42 year old man with depression, anxiety, and probable ASD. Now, ASD is autism spectrum disorder, if any of you don't know. Okay. Now, if we feel, and there are some comments um, to add on to this, but if we feel the need, not even the need, if we feel like we're comparing ourselves just like It's an instinct. Like it's not something that we really choose. It just happens automatically. Here's what I want you to do. When you find yourself looking out at someone else's life, first of all, we never know what's really going on in someone else's life. And I just have to put that out there because it's like, if we're on our phone on Instagram, we're like, oh my God, her life looks so good. Or his life looks so amazing. Or, oh, they're making so much money or whatever. And here you are like drowning in debt or struggling or not liking your career path or whatever. Right. We look out and think they have it all together and it's amazing but behind the scenes, we don't really know. We're making a lot of assumptions and they might be going through the exact same things as us. They just know how to take a good picture to make things look a certain way. And they, they, you know, quote unquote, tell a good story about their life. Right. So just putting that out there, it's never as good as we think it is, but what I want you to do is when you find yourself doing that, when we're looking out and thinking, oh, everything's so good and they have it all together and oh, I'm such a loser and blah, 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 right? We're comparing. I want you to, when you say something nice about them, right? When you make an assumption, oh my God, they, they like make so much money. They're so successful. You're giving them kind of a compliment, right? I want you to then look at your life and find one thing that you're grateful for or one thing that you can compliment yourself on. I know you hate it but it's important. We have to do this work. I know it's tedious, but it's important. The reason that this is such a knee-jerk reaction and something that you find yourself doing all the time is because you've been doing it with such regularity. The only way to stop a habit like this is to replace it with another habit or to add on another habit, which is kind of what I'm doing here. I'm not telling you to stop. In fact, the more you do it, the more you're going to have to compliment yourself and come up with more things to be grateful for. And you can't repeat them in the same day. So your grateful things can't be repeated in that day. And you can't have your days be the exact same either. I want you to mix it up. We need to come up with new things that we're grateful for or things that we want to compliment ourselves on. Okay. Um, I know it's going to be hard, but we're changing. Again, we're changing a habit. It takes a lot of work to change a habit. It took a lot of work to put this into place and it's going to take some effort to pull it out. But it's not that you just can stop doing it. We have to train our brain to think and do it in a different way. And so my goal for you is to pay attention and notice when you're doing it so that you can offer yourself a compliment or what you're grateful for. Cool? Cool. Okay. Now there was a comment on this and it says, as an add-on, how do you stop yourself from comparing yourself to others to the point where it becomes crippling? And you just can't seem to do anything right because your anxiety gets uh, bad when you do it. And yet you can't stop doing it. I know that's a really long, confusing question. Sorry. No, it's okay. No problem. So I guess, again, it's not about stopping it. I think that's kind of sometimes what, how we can get ourselves caught in situations or in, in patterns is when we think that the only way of doing something is just to like try to stop it, right? Oh, I just have to stop doing this. It's just I, I'm overdoing this, so I must, you know. It it's not so much about the stopping. It's more about the understanding where it's coming from and working to change that behavior or that pattern by introducing something more positive. And I think if we can not think about stopping it, but instead think of trying a different technique, then we'll feel better. I know that sounds kind of woo-woo or maybe a little silly, but I'm here to tell you when we think, oh, I can't do this anymore. That's all we're going to want to do. It's almost like the diet mentality when it comes to like behavioral change. We'll tell our brain, oh, we like, don't do that anymore. And then immediately our brain's like, thinks about it again. And we're like, and doing that, like, stop, stop, stop kind of stuff doesn't always work. I'd I'd argue most of the time it doesn't. I think what will work is when we notice we're doing it, saying, oh, I'm comparing again, or I'm doing it so much, my anxiety is getting really bad. Oh, Katie said that instead of just letting my brain spin out and compare and like, oh, make me more anxious, instead of letting it do that this time, I'm going to acknowledge that I'm doing it. Not gonna judge myself. I'm gonna say, oh fuck, you're doing that thing again, right? Oh, and then I'm gonna tell myself, hey, you know, I'm actually really grateful. I'm gonna be honest here. I'm gonna try to think of something for myself. I'm really grateful that Sean and I were able to uh, buy a home this year. That's pretty amazing. I never thought it would happen. I thought I'd be a renter for life. I'm really grateful for that. Now I know that's a big thing, and we're not gonna have those all the time. Another thing I'm grateful for is that I got a good night's sleep last night. Doesn't always happen, right? Super grateful. Also, I mean, look, just I'm putting these out there so maybe this will get you guys started and spark some ideas. I'm also grateful to the fact it's not raining today so that Roxy will go outside because our puppy is afraid of the rain. You heard it. I know it's true. She doesn't like it. She won't, it's like hard to get her to go potty. <laughs> it's been a stress. Um, so I'm grateful for that. I'm also grateful it's getting colder outside. I'm grateful that when I got up, I had my favorite bread. It's like the sourdough bread with everything bagel seasoning on it. It's amazing. Also, I have my cold brew. Grateful for that, right? It doesn't have to be, I think sometimes we think these things that we're grateful for have to be these big things. And sure, those are important and they are there, but Also, there's a ton of small things to be grateful for. Like my voice is kind of coming back and my throat isn't sore from screaming with my friends and having a good time, right? I'm grateful for that also, right? That I was able to do that. I know this is hard and I know it's tedious, but I'm just here to tell you that it is life-changing. I've shared this story many times before, but I'm going to share it one more time. There was a period in my life Multiple periods, not just a period. Let's be honest. But there was a period in my life when it was like my sophomore year of college. If any of you don't know, and my mom's dad, so my mom's father, um, had offered to pay for my school. And long story short, he was in the navy, and he, uh, before Pepperdine was in Malibu, they were like stationed down in Long Beach, I think, or something. And they would come up the coast, and he saw them built. He just thought it was such a cool area, and he was so excited that I was going there. He offered to pay for my schooling as a loan at a low interest rate to our family to pay it back. Okay. And I know some people pay parents and you know family pay for their schooling. My family's not like that. And my fa- my parents didn't have the money. So it was really great that he offered to do that. And I want to say our interest rate was like 2% or something. So he offered to pay and then he got, I don't know, not senile. I don't want to throw that word around because I don't really know what happened. But after my freshman year, it was like two weeks before I was going into my sophomore year, he decided he didn't want to pay anymore. But I'd already said no to all the loans and everything. I hadn't set up, done the FAFSA, and all the stuff that you have to do in the states. I had a withdrawal from Pepperdine for a year and go up. Um, I went up. I'm saying up because it was north to Seattle, and I went to Seattle Central Community College for a year as I saved money and applied for loans again and filled out all the paperwork. And during that time, I was really in a shitty place. I was super angry. I was frustrated. I had all this stuff planned, right? Like sophomore year's vision, people study abroad. That's why I went um, in the summer after that to go to Costa Rica to do a study abroad. Um, Anyway, long story short, I was in a really deep, dark place and I was really upset and I was really angry. And during that time, I was one of my close friends at the time told me I was hard to be around. And she did it in a loving way. It was hard for me to hear, I'll be honest. But she was like, you're really hard to be around. You're so angry all the time and frustrated. Like, I don't really want to call you. Like and she was, you know, again, doing it out of love. And I thought on it, and I was like, Yeah, I don't even like to be me. You think it's hard to be around me? Imagine being me, right? I was like, I gotta fucking change this. So I got back into therapy and um started doing this thing where every time I saw someone out in public, I would give them a compliment. Now I know you're thinking, like, what does this have to do with like comparing? Because isn't that comparing? No. I would give them a compliment, and then I would force myself to compliment myself, and it it took a lot of work, and I hated it. And it was funny when I first started doing it, I would find myself like doing like shit talking, like I try to give a compliment, but in my mind I'd be like, ugh, and those things are terrible, or I'm terrible, and I would like want to spend in like spiral in to the pit of despair and like negative thinking. And I was like, no, 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 and I'd force myself every time I said something negative to then come back with something positive, and it became super annoying and tedious. But I tell you what, it pulled me out. And I stopped having such negative trains of thought. I stopped being so angry at myself and everybody else. It's not to say, I mean, obviously I was working in therapy to like figure out the misplaced anger. And it was more because I was mad at my grandpa and him not really, you know, caring. And even when I tried to talk to him about it, he wouldn't reply. It was like all sorts of shit. But that part of it changed my mood for the better day in and day out. And it turned me into like this almost what I would call the cynical part of me be like a gross, like super positive person. And it wasn't that I couldn't, like, I couldn't be sad or life couldn't throw things my way. And I'd be like, oh, that sucks. But day in and day out, I just felt better. I felt more hopeful. I was more able to like, look out at people and be excited for them and be excited for me and them having good things didn't take from me. And I know that's a lot and i'm i'm sharing a lot of information that may or may not be helpful but i just want you all to know that we all struggle with comparison we all struggle with negative thought spirals and and thinking that everything in our life is terrible and i've been there like that's just one example right there's been multiple times i've really had a tough time i'm human too but it does get better and doing that tedious work little by little becomes habit so now i find myself and i'll have chunks of time where I'm not good like this, don't think that I'm perfect. But now when I see people, I'm like, that's so awesome. Good for them. Like I am actually excited. I get excited for people doing well. I get excited when people like I'm out in public and someone's like wearing something really cool and different, like a funky outfit. I'm like, good for him or her. Like they look so amazing, so happy. And that's so awesome. And you know, I, I no longer find myself looking out and being like, oh, son of a bitch, like I'm not doing anything as good as them. And like I don't do that anymore because it's more focused on like excited and um, good for them. And then excited, good for me. And doing that tedious work helps. I hope it makes sense. I hope it's helpful. If not, and I'm way off base, I apologize, but it's not about the stopping those thoughts. It's about channeling that energy into something different and doing what I'm talking about little by little will make you feel better. And it boosts your confidence too. It's just an added nice bonus. Let's move on to question number three. Now, this one's an interesting one. It says, hey, Katie, I was recently diagnosed with psychological non-epileptic seizures. Can you explain what exactly this is and how something psychological can turn into the physical? Thanks, Katie. Have a great day. Now, I have a video, God, from years ago about psychogenic movement disorders, and you can look it up. Um, I linked it in the description, so you can click that link too and watch. Now, these non-epileptic seizures, so here's here's what we know, is that it can come, and also I'm not a specialist in this, a lot of times um, people who do specialize in this work hand-in-hand with neurologists to ensure that nothing organic is going on, like that it's not something happening in our brain or in our body there's no other reason for these and that's a really really important thing to weed out but um, it can come from things like conversion disorder um, fictitious disorder uh, any of the things essentially it's like if our I think another one of them and I'm forgetting let me open it up here really quick and I apologize I had this open but I didn't um, I didn't think I needed it so Okay, it can come from a conversion disorder, somatoform disorder, or, and this is just giving you some terms to look up, and you can also watch my video where I talk all about this factitious disorder, and I think that is it. Okay, that's, that's all from the research that I had done, because um, they're not like tremors or Parkinson's, because these, these type of movements come on quickly and can go away quickly and go away for like weeks or months, and then all of a sudden come back. And I'm going to tell you what I know about them. And then I encourage you to ask your treatment team for more information about them. If there's any, I haven't found any good books about this at all. I've read some articles, but they're definitely really, really clinical and really research-based. So they're not like the best. But the reason that these happen, from my understanding, is when we get so overwhelmed, right? There's a, there's a level for each person, what's going to mean overwhelm and what overwhelm can cause, right? A lot of us have been overwhelmed and dissociated. All of a sudden we're like, I'm spaced out. I feel like I'm out of my body or I'm out of my environment. I, I don't really remember anything from that time. Or maybe I have a panic attack or maybe I just completely shut down and like have to sleep. I've had a lot of patients and even friends who are like, I just have to nap. I'm just, I can't, right? We just boop, shut down. So we all have these like overwhelm examples of how our body can react. Now, if we're overwhelmed all the time, let's say I'm constantly we or co- so hypervigilant when I'm out of my house that it's hard for me to leave my house. And if I do go out, I feel exhausted. And, and then when I, you know, if I stay out for too long, I completely have a meltdown and like have a panic attack. Then I dissociate and I, I like have to lay in my car until I'm ready to go home because it's not safe for me to drive. Okay. Just some examples. Now, if that's happening all the time, or let's even say we're one of those people who like looks like everything's together on the outside, but inside we're overwhelmed and freaking out and dissociating or whatever. Along come psychological non-epileptic seizures or psych, uh, you know the the psychogenic movement disorders, meaning movements that we have or make like seizures or strange movements um, that have all to do with our psychological health and nothing to do with our physical health. And I believe these are a result of. A consistent state of overwhelm, a difficulty with the environment, and and that's why I like conversion disorder and somatoform disorder. And if you want, um, let me pull those up uh, so I can read you um, the exact the exact diagnosis. So conversion disorder is a medical condition in which the brain and body's nerves are unable to send and receive signals properly. Okay, so we're not getting the signals; they're not being. Read you know properly, Somatoform disorder is also known as somatic symptom disorder (SSD) or psychosomatic disorder. is a mental health condition that is caused that causes an individual to experience physical bodily symptoms in response to psychological distress. Again, that distress. So overall, just to kind of put this back together, is I believe these non-epileptic seizures that you're that you're having are as a result of feeling. Overwhelmed for a long period of time, feeling in distress. Um, A lot of my patients who have struggled with, like more of the tics, not so much the seizures. I've had patients not, and it's not just. If we have autism spectrum disorder or ASD, we can do what's called stemming, or we can where it's like we kind of like do movements like rocking or tapping. It's these repetitive movements that can help. Uh, help. They're kind of soothing to our system. They help us feel a little bit better. That's not what I'm talking about here. But we can do certain things like, like flick a hand. It could be like a movement. I had a patient um, in the hospital who did like these little ticks with her head, like her neck movement. And if she get really overwhelmed, she do kind of like these little neck rolls. Now everybody's gonna be different, but it's just one example. But the. Um, it's just because of that consistent state of overwhelm or potential trauma in our past that we're like working through. And it just feels overwhelming altogether. Um, I even have a lot of patients who rock and it has nothing to do with ASD. It's it's part of the like self-soothing, right? Because think of like a baby, you rock them. But seizures, I think because those aren't, it's not like a soothing. I think it's kind of a reboot for our brain when we feel overwhelmed. Now, again, I'm not a specialist. I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a you know, I haven't done research into psychogenic movement disorders or non-epileptic seizures. But overall, the one consistent thread that runs through them is just that state of overwhelm, feeling like things are just too much. We feel too distressed or too whatever, that we just can't, we can't cope. And so our brain kind of reboots on its own and this, the sooner we can find ways to, to calm our system or, or maybe even dig down to figure out where, what the root of this really is. Is it trauma-based? Is it, you know, maybe, um, the distress of my life is too much. I need to make some changes, like whatever it is that we can kind of track it back to. If we are able to change those things and remove those stressors a little bit, I think we will feel so much better. And these seizures will go away. Um, And that's why we see them kind of come and go quickly is all about like resilience and our ability to cope or the ways that we're, we are coping. And I know that that's not like a complete uh, answer, but again, I don't specialize in this, but those are just the things that I know about them based on the research I did for that video. And, you know, the things that I understand within what I do, some people do have movements that they do Um, that are like, like I said, factitious disorder, which is a mental illness where we we like kind of pretend that we're sick or having an issue to get attention or to get medical attention. And again, that's not a bad thing. I know there's lots of judgment when we need attention. Everybody needs attention. But there can be a lot of different reasons. But with seizures and what's happening with you, I think it's just that overwhelm and we have to find ways to help you calm down. Question number four says, hi, Katie. I was wondering, and I hope this isn't too insensitive, but it seems that everyone is struggling with their mental health to an extent. But if it's so common, why does my therapist tell me that it's okay that I can't just push mental health aside when everyone else has to just get on too? How can I not judge myself for not being as functional? So much comparison this week for not being as functional as other people when other people struggle too and get stuff done. I hope this makes sense. I find it hard to validate my depression and anxiety when everybody and their, um, and their goldfish nowadays talks about having anxiety and depression too. Doesn't that make it more common than not? And thank you for a- answering my last question. Of course. Um, okay. Yes, it feels like everyone struggles with their mental health because most people do. One in four globally are affected. I mean, with the pandemic, I'd argue it's like four out of four. Like everybody's having a tough time, but here's the kicker. Other people having a tough time doesn't mean that you can't have a tough time either. And we don't know, again, kind of going back to what I was talking about, like seeing things online and comparing that way, where we don't know the full story. You don't know someone else's full story either. You don't know what it means to them when they say they have crippling depression or anxiety, because that's their business. That's their experience. And everyone's experience is valid. Now your experience is that you're having a really tough time and it's making it hard for you to like. Function in your life, which, uh, by the way, is part of the diagnostic criteria of almost every mental illness. So, your depression and anxiety are crippling, and that is what it is. It doesn't really matter what anybody else is doing, theirs can exist too. It's not like pie. There's not like a limited amount of depression and anxiety to go around, and by you taking a slice, you're like taking from someone else. No, that's not how this works. It's really you have a struggle. They have a struggle. All struggles are valid. And I don't know why we feel the need to compare when it comes to like illnesses. I don't know if this happens in physical illnesses, but I would assume not. Like if I had the flu, I wouldn't, you know, talk to this other lady on the street and be like, oh, you had it too. Well, how bad was yours? Because, you know, I think guess maybe mine, and when she told me how bad hers was, I'd be like, I guess mine wasn't that bad. Maybe I really didn't have the flu. Like you wouldn't do that. That's just not how we are. So I don't know why we do it when it comes to mental illnesses. I wouldn't be like, oh, you got a cold? Oh, that means I, mine probably wasn't that bad if you have a cold too. Everybody seems to be having a cold right now. Damn. I don't have a right to be sick. What? No. You have every right to be sick. You have every right to have anxiety and depression that's making your life difficult. And it is common. Anxiety is the most common mental illness. I'm just reading through the question again. Um, it's the most common mental illness affecting, I don't know how many millions. I want to say it's like 30 million people, maybe 40 million people, a lot of people anyway. Um, I think everything's underreported. So I always assume every mental illness is happening with more frequency or is more common than we think because like no one's asked me, you know, like how would they know? Um, if I didn't get diagnosed, how would you know? Um, so anyway, I think that, um, that it probably comes, I mean, I talked to your therapist about this because I think this judgment and this comparison, it's going to take, you're going to have to fight back against it kind of in the same way I was talking about how we have to give other people compliments. I think we have to validate other people and ourselves simultaneously. So when we find these thoughts coming up, I think it might be beneficial for you to think, yeah, that must be really hard for them, right? And we have to have identifiable people. I would encourage you to challenge with facts, and because we don't have any facts when we have these thoughts about like huge swaths of people that we don't know we're like oh it seems like everybody in the u.s right everybody around the world is talking about anxiety and depression everybody around the, huh really is that actually supported with fact the short answer is no so you tell your brain to shut the fuck up and stop doing this to you and instead we say you know other people do have anxiety and depression and i personally because i struggle as well right validating them validating us know how hard that is. And that must really suck. And I hate that all of us are going through this, right? There's no judgment. There's no hierarchy. We just, we are. And so I'd encourage you to pay attention to when you're judging or when you're thinking that everybody else has it, therefore you can't. I want you to check your facts and I want you to validate yourself and others simultaneously. I think it'll be easier for you to validate other people, but then once you've done that, I want you to, you know, turn that on yourself and be like, and for me too, you know, but be more specific, use some language like, and I know, so let's say we've said to other people, I know that it can be really uncomfortable. And it's, it's really a bummer that people are going through it. I wish there was better help out there, but I I also feel, you know, the ramifications of it, or I feel the symptoms of it. And sometimes it's debilitating and that sucks for me too. So we're validating, validating again, tedious again. I know it's exhausting, but I just want you to know that It's not pie. There's plenty to go around, and someone else having something doesn't mean that we can't have it. And it is super common, but again, that doesn't mean that that you can't have your feelings and your struggles about it. Because everyone's going to be different. Everybody's level of resilience, meaning their ability to like weather life storms, Mm -hmm. is going to be different. Everyone's ability to like white knuckle and push through, which I do not recommend. That makes a lot of things worse. Like I've had tons of patients over the years who like stuff it down, stuff it down, and then you know, come to a day where they just can't do it anymore, have repeated panic attacks. Maybe they have to leave their job or they have to go into inpatient, right? Just because someone looks like they're managing it better than us doesn't mean they are. And it also doesn't mean that we can't still have our struggles. So notice the judgments don't necessarily work to stop them, but but do validate and check your facts on it. Because I think you're making a lot of assumptions and just because something's common doesn't mean that we can't have it too. And yeah I, I hope that helps I know it's hard I know I know we're in a tough time right now and comparison is strong because people are spending more and more time online because we're not out socializing as much we're getting back into it which I'm really grateful for but just pay attention to it like and I'm glad or I think you said you're talking to your therapist about it Maybe not. Yes. You said your therapist tells you it's okay. Yeah. Let your therapist know what you're going to try and that you're going to try to do this and have them check in on it for you so they can, you know, be hold you accountable to your homework and keep me posted. Okay. There was a comment on this and it says on the opposite end of the same subject, I always get from people, including my therapist that I look like I'm doing just fine. Oh, internal distress. Like no one can tell, including my therapist from looking at me, that there's anything wrong. We can be really good at hiding it. When all I feel is like that I'm two seconds away from falling apart, most days I get out of bed because frankly, I have too many things going on that I can't not get out of bed. But the only thing I want to do is just stay in bed and pull the covers over my head and never come out again. Taking care of myself is getting harder every day. And that's all I hear from everyone is you have to take care of yourself. And it just feels like my therapist doesn't get it. She says she believes I'm depleted, but she'll say I look fine and that she can't tell there's anything wrong looking at me as if that's the only way to tell. Come on now which is just confusing. How should I look? And it didn't help that I just got bad news from my doctor about my current health status. I just want to be able to express how bad this all feels, um, how close to the edge I'm feeling, and that I really need to do something about it before it all comes crashing down. However, even trying to do that is just so difficult with my anxiety. There are days where I just feel like it's too hard to keep fighting people to do what they're supposed to do. And I just want to give up. But at the same time, I'm afraid of what it would look like or what might happen if I do. It's like those bad thoughts are right there waiting to take over and I won't have energy to fight them off. As always, any insights you can give me would be greatly appreciated. thought this was an interesting side aside from this or like an add-on because a lot of us look like we have our shit together, but internally we don't. And what I would challenge, I mean, here's a question I have for anybody who's out there feeling like that. What would it mean for you or for your life or the people in your life if you didn't hold it all together? Because there's a reason that we're like, gotta look so tough or look so put together on the outside. There's something in us that's telling us that that's the only way to cope. And I'm curious about that. So, almost in my head, I'm like, instead of trying to change that or say like, how do I let people know that I'm having a really hard time? I'm more curious about like what it would mean to you or like what you assume it's going to mean to people around you if you fell apart. Because we don't all have to be strong all the time. We don't always have to have it all together. There's nothing wrong with falling apart. But I'm curious what you tell yourself about it. Because the only one pretending to hold it all together and make it look okay on the outside is you. And I don't mean that as any judgmental like pointing you i'm just saying that no one's telling you you have to hold it all together but we're taking on that responsibility for some reason now here are some thoughts i have about our hypotheses that i have that i would want to test are we like in our family maybe the the one that fixes everything are we responsible for everyone else's emotional well-being and physical well-being how did we get that role hmm if that's true how do we get that role do we accept that role today maybe we don't can i just bounce out of that role and 100% you can. You know how we do that? Putting other people in charge, delegating, and letting ourselves off the hook. Yes, it takes some mental like fortitude to be like, nope, I'm not responsible. Nope, nope. In the first like bit of time, you're going to feel like you don't have anything to do. And you're going to feel like you're not doing your quote unquote job of like holding it together, doing things for everybody else. But over time, and you'll find your brain fighting it, you're going to you're going to start to fall apart because we don't have the distraction. Okay, so I'll get into that now. But consider that. Why why do I feel like I have to have it all together? If I didn't have it all together, what would that mean? Let's dig into that. Secondary is that we can do this. We can try to hold it all together and look like we got it to, you know, we're doing good um, as a way to distract from how shitty we feel. And it makes sense. Nobody wants to feel shitty or admit that they feel shitty and like actually feel it. Ugh, right? Nobody wants to do that. But unfortunately, we have to. We have to let ourselves feel all the good, bad, ugly, indifferent, whatever, thoughts, feelings, things like that. Let it like wash over us. It doesn't have to take over us, but it can happen. And we can be frustrated and we can feel it and we can move on. And I think I would argue that maybe this like stuffing it down is our only distraction, our only way that we know how to quote unquote cope, which tells me we need more coping skills and more resources. It's not just about taking care of yourself. Even just doing this is taking care of yourself. So it's not so much that your therapist needs to notice that you're barely holding it on or holding it together. I mean, it's not the people in your life need to notice. We need to find a way for you to be able to tell people. First, we have to find a way for you to be able to tell yourself, I would assume yeah, I think that's probably the hardest is just admitting to yourself that like, I don't feel good and I don't, I don't like this and I don't want to do this anymore. That might be really hard or it might be easy, but I'm just, we're just, I'm talking it out, right? We're just talking it out because if we can dig into that stuff and we can figure out why, why this role is the role that we take, we took or have taken or continue to take, right? Why this role? Why can't someone else take it? Could someone else do it for a bit? Could others, could we divvy up this role of having it all together to other people and take turns falling apart? For some reason, there's always one person in every family. It's usually like the hero child where they do everything perfectly and good. They hold it all together for everybody. And if the hero child falls apart, other people in the family can be like, they can scramble to try to hold their own shit together or to push that person back into holding it together. It's just interesting. I don't really have like a full answer for this. I just, I'm curious about those things. I want you to think about when you took on this role, because my, my guess would be from a very young age. You've always been the one that has it all together. I think a lot of us can feel like we have to have it all together. And I always am curious, like, well, what would happen if you fell apart? What would happen if you melted down? Is that so bad? What's so bad about doing that? What would that mean for you? What are you telling yourself about that? I'm curious. But yeah, I think. And then my homework for you is to get better, meaning we're just going to start practicing at telling people that we're not doing well. Start with your therapist and even tell them, I'm going to try to get better at telling you how bad I feel and what's really going on. Because I know I can, on the out from the outside, I can look like everything's fine. And that's, that's really our work. Little by little, we have to break this pattern because I think we've been in this pattern probably since we were like 10 years old, maybe even younger. But that's my hypothesis. Let me know what you think. Okay, final, I think this is the final add-on comment. Nope, there's two more. Another question on this says, as an add-on, what if you're very high functioning? I have anxiety and attachment issues and I sometimes self-harm. And my psychiatrist talks about a depressed state, but I'm not feeling depressed and I get my work done most of the time. So I sometimes wonder if I'm not just exaggerating the whole thing because I don't feel like my symptoms are bad enough to warrant a diagnosis. Like I probably have some subclinical depression and anxiety, but I feel like this doesn't really count as a diagnosis. My therapist said that some people can have a lot of resources and still struggle a lot. It was very validating. Your therapist is correct. Again, everybody's level of resilience or number of resources, their ability to weather life storms, can make them uh, better able to white knuckle through life. Meaning, I can just hang in there. I can get to work or school. I can do my job or, or you know, study. Heck, I can even do something socially. But then, when I'm not doing those things, I'm like, oh, like I need a nap. I'm like comatose. I have to like lay down. I can't do anything else because have To recharge, it's taking all my energy for me just to barely hang on. High functioning mental illnesses are still mental illnesses, it just means that because of our level of resources and uh, what was it? Uh, what did your therapist say? Sorry, I have to read it again. Yeah, he said resources, but coping skills, let's say, or a level of resilience. But because of that, the level, then we're able to do the things that people assume people with depression or anxiety can't do. And I'm here to tell you that. Mental illnesses look different depending on the person going through them and depending on the situation in which you encounter that person. Like if you, if someone was to see me out at like a work event where I have to like schmooze with people and talk a lot, you'd be like, oh, Katie's an extrovert and she's like super outgoing. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I can be when I have to be, but in my like self of selves, mm-mm. I'm not that person. After those events, I need like three days to recover where I don't talk to anybody but Sean. And that's it. Right. And so maybe when you see someone, you're like, oh, they don't seem depressed. They're super happy. Well, yeah, I saw them at like this one year old birthday party where they were there for two hours and they just like put on a happy face and did the thing. And so everyone, I I say all that and I won't belabor it anymore, but everyone's going to look a little bit different. And that doesn't mean that a diagnosis is not is not met or isn't warranted it just means that for us it just looks and feels different than what it looks and feels like for someone else not everyone with every mental illness has it in a severe type i don't know why we think that in order to warrant us getting help or to get a diagnosis we have to be severely disabled like we have to struggle to do anything what that really means is we often need a higher level of care and we probably waited way 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 too long to reach out for support. People wait too long anyway. I I even as a person who goes into therapy waits too long to get back into it. So that that just that's what that means. It doesn't mean that that help is more warranted or that we earn it more or that we're I don't know that it's valid. It just means that we have a lot more to work through. And truly the sooner we get into see someone the sooner we start working on it the better. And so I would argue that you you just have a ton of resources and coping skills. Your resilience level is really high. You really work hard to do that. And that's why you're able to do like the bare minimum and hang on while you try to figure out, you know, what's going on to work through it. You still can feel shitty and you still have, I think it was anxiety and depression that you talked about. Yeah. Depressed. Oh, depressed state. Yeah. So your depression is still there. But you just have a lot of ways to cope and ways to deal. And so it doesn't come through in the way that I think you've assumed that it should. Okay, now the final add-on to this is regarding people minimizing grief and the fact that losing a grandparent is a common experience. Common... Why do we think that common means that we don't have a right to feel bad about it? Just because something happens to a lot of us doesn't mean it doesn't fucking suck, right? Like take COVID, for example. A lot of people have been getting COVID. I luckily haven't. I'm going to knock on wood. A lot of people gotten COVID. Now, just because a lot of people have gotten it doesn't mean that when I found out that my mom's boyfriend, Larry had it, that I couldn't be crazy worried about him and making sure he's okay, by the way, full recovery, totally fine. Just because it's common doesn't mean I can't feel the way I need to feel about it. So just throwing that out there, just because a lot of people lose their grandparents and it's a common experience doesn't mean that we can't be devastated. When my papa passed away, I was devastated. And I still sometimes am like sad about it. My phone kicked up a photo from like three years ago. It was like memories, you know, memories. And it was my papa with my uh, niece B. And I was like, ooh, it, just because it's common doesn't mean I can't feel the way I need to feel about it. Okay. So, and this person goes on to say, I lost my grandparents six years ago. And I'm just now dealing with some of the guilt and grief related to that loss. Yeah. Sometimes it can be complicated, right? I have a whole video about complicated grief that I would encourage you to watch. Their deaths were within the same week. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. And super sudden. It was a total shock to me, actually. I think I su- stuffed it for a long time because life was just too crazy. Is it common for people to do this and to not deal with it until years later? Yes, especially in situations like this. I had lots of well-meaning people tell me to just be happy that they're in heaven, not suffering anymore, etc. cetera. That's such bullshit. So maybe I just also stuffed it because I didn't feel like it was socially acceptable for me to talk about my sadness around it it's super hard for me to even talk about it now, but I'm doing it in therapy. And it's not even the reason that I went to therapy to begin with. People don't, uh, some w- well-meaning people say a lot of things that are hurtful. Unfortunately, that's just the, those are the facts. People say shit because they don't have any understanding or knowledge of psychological, I don't even, health or grief and how grief is like, sure. That's why grief can be complicated too. We can feel relief sometimes when people pass away when they've had like a chronic illness, but that doesn't make our grief or us missing them any better or any less. Like my, my papa passed away uh, in October of 2019 and my grandma, she was like traumatized by it. She read my book. You guys, it was the sweetest thing. I sent her one of my books and she, she read the first chapter or whatever. And she said, she called me and she's like, sis, I, I, I read your book and you know, she's proud and cause she's my grandma and I love her. And she was like, I think I was traumatized by your papa's death. And I was like, of course, Graham, like they were married for, oh God, like 65 years or something. No longer than that. Like 68 years. Anyway, really, really long time. He was her best friend. They'd been together forever. And she found him. I mean, ugh. Right, and she is still dealing with it. It's been two years. There's no time limit. And when people tell us like, oh, they're better, because he had a he had COPD and his health was deteriorating. He was 86. You know, in a way, you could feel relief for him. Like, oh, you know, it felt. Or like I had a friend, like a family friend, the the grandfather. He got um, Alzheimer's and it got really bad. And the wife felt relief when he passed away, but it doesn't mean she didn't miss him. And it took her years to process it. So I know I'm getting in the weeds on this a little bit, but people don't understand what grief is like. And sure, we can feel good, for them or happy for them that they're no longer in pain. But that doesn't mean that we can't feel shitty about it and wish they were here. And I know then there's this complication like, oh, I'm being selfish. I just wish they were back. No, you love them and it's hard. We've lost a person. We want that person in our life. Like Even when my dog Corny, we had to put him to sleep because he was getting so, so sick. I missed him and I wanted him around. It wasn't that I didn't understand that it was probably better for him to not be in pain anymore. But that doesn't also... that his relief or the relief of the pain physically that they might be experiencing doesn't mean that I have relief from the grief, right? One doesn't negate the other. They can both happen at the same time. And so when it comes to grief, especially when people tell us that like, you know, it was a shock. So that's a trauma. So you were traumatized. I just want you to know. And people told you just like be happy for them. So you didn't really feel like it was appropriate for you to express your grief. It has taken you six years to even Begin that process and grief is so complicated. So, all in all, you can watch my video about um, complicated grief. I also have a video about, I think it might just be called like feeling relief when someone dies. Maybe that's what you look up on YouTube. But both of those things hopefully will help you feel validated in the comments too. And just know that grief takes time, we all work through it at our own pace, it comes and goes. And it's okay for you to feel sad. It's okay for you to work through it at your own pace. Um, and it does get better. I don't know if that is any, you know, any gives you any relief or any hope for the future, but I'm here to tell you, as someone who's lost people in my life, my dad and my grandpa and um, my other grandpa and grandma, like it does get better. So hang in there. Okay. And if you hear barking, it's cause Roxy is, you know, she's a very spirited puppy dog. <laughs> okay. Question number five says, hey, Katie, I have a question about therapists showing emotion in session. Last week, I was talking to my therapist about my suicidal ideation and some rituals around attempting. Her response after I explained what was going on was that it makes her sad. And she teared up and had to take a minute to compose herself. Sadness of any kind makes me really uncomfortable. That's interesting. So I didn't ask her why that made her sad. But when I've talked about my trauma, she's been emotionless or almost robotic, even though I really wanted Oh, wanted to. Interesting. Would it be weird to ask her why one makes her sad and not the other? Thanks. Of course, it'd be fine. The great thing about therapy is we're sharing in a human experience. Yes, the relationship itself is a little bit different, but this is a great place for you to not only understand why some, one thing makes her sad versus the other. I have my suspicions. I don't know if you want me to share them. I'll share a little, about, little bit about what I think it is. Um, trauma, I'd assume, is in the past. And the suicidal ideations or suicidal rituals are now. And when you're a therapist, you can obviously you can feel for patients in the past, but when someone's feeling so hopeless and helpless now in the current, and sometimes as a therapist, you can feel like helpless to make them feel better or to to work with them to work through it, right? I know we can't make anybody feel better, but you know what I mean. I can feel a little helpless too, and that feeling can be really sad. And then I can feel really sad for them because imagine the helplessness and hopelessness their experience. It's just really hard. And yes, trauma when we're trying to process it can be hard to hear as well. But this is like in the current, and we can feel a little bit more responsibility for it. But I don't really know what her reasoning will be, and I would encourage you to ask. That's totally fine, but. Therapists are human too, and I think that's the great thing about it is even though we don't know anything about our therapists, about their life, it's a great place to practice communication. And I would really want you to dig into why sadness is so uncomfortable for you. What is it about sadness? Is it, does it feel overwhelming? are you afraid you won't be able to pull yourself out of it? Is it something that has never been expressed to you? Or if you were sad, did you get punished in some way? I'd be very curious about that and dig into that. And I think this conversation with your therapist will help initiate that conversation. Okay. And keep me posted. That's interesting. But yeah, I think overall therapists are people too. And some things might just, you know, get us more than others, poke those buttons. Let's move on to question number 6. This question says, "Hi Katie, I feel like I don't know who I am. I am so used to mirroring people and reflecting their emotions rather than actually feeling it that I no longer feel like me, and at times I don't really feel like I'm real. I don't know what my values in life are, my desires, hopes, or just in general what makes me up what, what makes me up as a person. I feel really empty." almost like a shell of a person. Why do I feel like this? And what can I do to discover myself? This is so common, often, especially when we're people pleasers, but we can dig into that. So mirroring people, if anybody doesn't know what that really means, it's like when we're, we're kind of like mimicking other people and like doing what they do as a way to get them to accept us and to feel connected. It's a very useful tool. And a lot of people, um, a lot of autistic people will use mirroring as a way to do the social cues that they might not know how to do otherwise, if that makes sense. And so if someone seems really upset, they want to like mirror that expression to make sure that, you know, even though they feel it, those, if you guys don't know those with ASD don't often reflect emotionally the same way that we would do like facial expressions, or they don't understand social cues in the same way maybe we would, or feel the need to do them in the way we would. And so they'll mirror, many people will mirror as a way to fit in and feel connected. Because obviously we need connection too. And just because we can't express it in that way doesn't mean we don't feel it. right? So anyway, that can happen. And it can lead to a lot of us, whether we're people pleasing, whether we are on the spectrum or just struggle with our own emotions, we can feel like we don't even know who we are or what we like and don't like, which is when we need to enter into a little period of our life of self-discovery. And it takes time. We're not just going to be able to flip a switch and figure out who we are, but here's what we can do. And I'd encourage you to do your best to try to have like childlike wonder when it comes to this. Be curious about things. Want to try new things. Sign up for a class. Take a online course about something. Do join a group that hikes. See if you like that. Maybe you don't, but we got to try it. And so trying new things is going to be key. Meeting new people, doing things, putting ourselves out there and just saying yes to a bunch of random types of activities and interactions and events. Just say yes. Maybe we even start going down a rabbit hole of music, listening to different things, trying different foods, ordering from different restaurants, all that stuff just sometimes it helps. I had a patient years ago, we would pretend that she was like an alien from a foreign planet and she didn't understand anything. And I was like, okay, what do we want to learn about this week? What are we really curious about? And she'd be like, I really want to understand like the fish in the sea. And I was like, well, read up on the fish. Is it interesting? And I know that can sound really goofy and really silly, but trying to have childlike wonder about something and pretending that we're an alien from another planet I know, as adults, we're like, we don't play pretend anymore. We're very serious. Oh, that just fucks us up. It doesn't allow for us to figure things out and to be curious, because the truth about this is, everybody is constantly discovering themselves. We're always changing. There's things I thought I didn't like that I like now, and things I thought that I, you know, like that I don't. It goes back and forth, like, don't like. Some I I don't even know. I'm trying to think of a good example oh okay i used to hate uh, as a kid i used to hate brussels sprouts i think most kids hate brussels sprouts as an adult fucking love them why because i don't think i was cooking them right as a kid my mom had them frozen and would boil them and they'd get mushy and i thought they were gross as an adult i understand that i like them in the oven crisped up so does my mom now too surprise surprise because mushy nobody likes mushy vegetables um that's just one random example um I used to think i loved hiking loved being outdoors and walking along turns out don't like it anymore Just I'm I'm changing, right? And we're all changing. So I say all that to let you know that you're not alone in discovering yourself. All of us are constantly discovering ourselves, especially, well, not all. Some people don't want to learn about themselves. We're just like cut off and we're not really challenging ourselves. But for those of us who are trying to feel better and do better and grow, we're doing that all the time. So open yourself up to that. And here's where it's going to get tricky for you. If we've never checked in with ourselves, if we're always looking outside for validation or for any kind of like cue that they like something or want to do something and and going along with stuff, it's going to be hard for us to know when we like and don't like something. And that's why when we try out these new activities, I encourage you to do it solo at first. And if you aren't very social and going out in a group by yourself, you're like, oh my God, absolutely not. Let's do things at home. Let's try different foods at home. Let's uh, listen to different music. Let's try some different courses. There's tons of online courses these days. Let's learn about something and see if we're interested. What do we like and not like? Let's, you know, watch some TV shows. Did we enjoy that? No. Do we like being scared? Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Give yourself an opportunity by yourself to think about it. And I assume at the beginning, you're going to have a tough time and you're going to say, I don't know if I like or don't like that. I don't know then I want you to grab the feelings wheel, which I know a lot of you are like, well, how is that going to help? Do you just go to feelingswheel.com, print that off or save it, bookmark it on your computer or your phone, look at that and see what feelings, once you've done an activity, actually, it might be better if we do it before and after, but if you just do it after, that's okay too. But before, let's pick three feelings off of the wheel. What are we feeling? What are we experiencing? Maybe we don't know. That's okay then after we've done something, does anything come up? Any, Even if it's just one feeling, is there any feeling that comes to mind? What does that feeling tell us? It might tell us whether we like or don't like something. But allow yourself to be curious and learn as you go and know that when you say you don't like something doesn't mean I will never. And if you do like something, it doesn't mean you're always going to. We have the right to change our minds and change our likes, but we have to just allow ourselves the curiosity, the like childlike curiosity to discover it. And I think trying new things and when friends ask you to do things or if someone at work is like, hey, we're all gonna go bowling, be like, Yeah, I'll do that. Maybe I'll love it, maybe I'll hate it. I don't really know yet. Right. And that's why it can be helpful to have that feelings wheel on your phone because when you get in your car after bowling with some people, you can look at it and be like, you know, I actually feel energetic or excited. I think I like bowling. And we're going to learn as we go. We're going to keep doing things because maybe it wasn't really the bowling. Maybe we're really an extrovert. We like being around people. Do you see where I'm going with this? So have that childlike wonder. If you find yourself making assumptions, I don't think I'd like that. Well, let's try and find out. I want you to always have me in your head saying, well, let's just try and find out. Let's see. Well, let's do it again if we're not sure. Maybe we do like it. That part was fun. Hmm. Right? So yeah, let yourself be curious. Let yourself you know be non-judgmental and fit in slowly but surely we'll learn about ourselves and again it's constant something we're all going to have to do and it's best when it's done by ourselves because then we're not really influenced by other people thinking that we need to please them first okay there was a comment on this. that said, same. I feel like I've become a shut down version of myself whose only goal is to get along with and please others and not be a, bur- a problem or a burden in any way. I have trouble forming or expressing my own opinion or making decisions because I'm scared of what others may say or think. I feel so empty or like I don't have an identity. I suspect that it comes from anxiety, people pleasing and constantly comparing myself to others. But knowing, knowing better isn't helping me do better. How do I start changing this? I'm not in therapy at the moment, but I'm hoping to be in a few months time. Also struggling with depression and an eating disorder. Interesting. So depression, and eating disorder, I think are a result of this because we're like all of our upset or dislikes are going inward because we don't feel free to say them outwardly. But that's a whole nother conversation. Um, it's tricky. Again, doing things on your own, I think is going to be really important. And what I would encourage you to do is to start journaling so that we can do this before therapy. And the way I want you to be curious. So at at the end of the day, I want you to look back on your day or maybe the day before, you know, if you don't have anything that happened that day, that's okay. We can look back farther, but I want you to consider the last decision that was made around you, not one that you made, but one that was made around you that affected you. Like everything from who drove to the event or whatever, uh, when you left, what restaurant you maybe went to, what time... Was set for something. Uh, who was in charge of what? At an, you know, like maybe it's a potluck, or who was going to call who, or who? Let's say at work, who was responsible for a certain part of a project? I'm trying to think of other things, but you hopefully you get the gist. Any decision, what brand of something you purchased at the store, or whether or not you got something that you wanted, uh, stopped or not stopped at Starbucks or something like that. Like small things throughout our day, the decisions that we make. And I want you to pay attention to those, jot some of them down, like let's do two or three. And then I want you to journal about how you felt. Now you might not know right away, or maybe instead of how you felt, because I know feelings can be kind of triggering and we can be like, I don't know, and shut down. What's your opinion on that thing? Like, let's say it's something small, like I'll make up an example of my own. Um, So I wanted to stop at Starbucks on the way home and Sean didn't. And so we didn't okay let's say that's the that's the decision so in my opinion i was bummed right i really wanted to because i had been craving their bacon gouda sandwich i'm making stuff up here um and i hadn't had a soy latte in a while so my opinion is that i gave in and i was bummed out and it it kind of made my morning a little rough okay and it's just, I'm just journaling. I'm just thinking about an opinion or, or I'm thinking, not an opinion. I'm thinking about a decision that was made where I didn't stand up for myself or I didn't say anything or I didn't push for my way. Again, not everybody gets their way all the time, by the way. But I'm considering a situation and what happened and I'm just slowing it down. Because in order to stand up for ourselves or in order to make decisions or push for our way, we have to first understand like how we feel about things and our thought process. And, and then there's something that another member of our community does this and I love it. And I even do it myself sometimes too, is like, is it the end of the world? If I advocate for my thing, like let's say in that Starbucks thing that would have added what five minutes, maybe 10, let's say it was super busy, 10 minutes onto our drive drive home. Would that have affected anything? Did he have a call? No, he didn't have a call he had to be on. Did he have to edit? Yeah, but it didn't really matter. 10 minutes. It's just 10 minutes. It's not the end of the world. And guess what? Then in my journal, I would write in that scenario, I could have pushed for my way and it would have been fine. And I want you to do this. I know it's kind of slow and tedious again, but paying attention to that and considering when something's the end of the world or when it's, is it that big of a deal or not? If we just take the time to do that, we can lower our anxiety, right? Because by doing this, we're kind of checking our facts. We're slowing down the process and we're giving our brain other things to look at besides just the worry spiral of like, oh my God, no one's going to like me. And then Sean's going to be mad. I made him stop. And then he's going to be really grouchy all day. I have no facts to support that. But if we go through this, and this is why we're doing it for past things in the day, we're not doing it in the moment going to start there and then build up to situations because some like that Starbucks situation could be repeated, right? It could happen next week. And guess what? Then I'm going to advocate for myself. I'm going to push to stop because I've already thought about it. And uh, I think it's great. And I think it can be okay. And it won't be the end of the world, right? And so do that little by little, because that's the best way to start changing it. Sure, there's a lot of work we can do in therapy on like our confidence and our people pleasing behavior and healthy boundaries. But for right now, it's like that will help us see all the ways we're bending over backwards to help other people or doing things to please others when those things aren't really important. That's something I do know as a, a recovering people pleaser is that the things that I thought were important or would upset someone uh, don't. And I was like waiting things m- with much more uh, like putting so much more weight into certain things that didn't actually matter at all. And so it was like causing me extra stress and I was doing all this extra stuff for no reason, essentially. But I couldn't see that when I was in it. Now there's an add-on and it says, um, how can we know when we, uh, who we are when it feels like our whole world has revolved around our mental illness? Hmm and that's almost become who we are. I don't really have hobbies or anything like that. Again, going back to the beginning when I answered that question, it's like being having childlike curiosity, being curious about what we like and don't like and trying new things will really help. And then it just takes time. And like I said, we're all trying to get to know ourselves, so just give yourself an opportunity to slowly learn, trying like one or two new things a week, depending on how big the thing is, right? maybe like, a, let's keep Starbucks as an example, or a coffee shop. Maybe every day we always just get our coffee black because that's just what we've always done. And that's what we were told we should do at one point. We just never went back. Then maybe tomorrow we try a latte. Say if we like it, right? We don't know if we don't try. Maybe you get two drinks, the one that you normally get and something else. So if it sucks, it sucks. We throw it out, whatever. Okay. We wasted $3 or $5 or whatever. Doing little things like that will slowly help us learn. And it'll help you learn about your hobbies. You got to try new things to know if you like them. And I think as adults, sometimes we think we can't try new things. And I'm here to tell you, you can. And sure, it can be kind of scary. And we can feel like, oh my God, I'm a little, I'm older. Like I remember when I, even when I studied abroad in Costa Rica, there were older people in the school that I was at. And they were just as much a part of it as, as I was. And a lot of them said, you know, I put it off and put it off. And I thought I was too old, but I still wanted to do it. And so I just took the plunge, just tried. I think that's, I think that's great. Okay. Somebody else said, I grew up trying to be like others. I'm struggling with this too. Where do I begin? Again, I think I've given a lot of examples for that. And the last one says, this question really resonated with me. Katie, I know you sometimes talk about the importance of gaining mastery in something, but do you have any advice on how we should decide what to gain mastery in? I think it goes back to that curiosity and trying new things. Give yourself an opportunity to try new things. And when you find something that you think you like, let's try it again. And do it again. Like I'll give a good example personally, um, paddleboarding. So I tried paddleboarding for the very first time with my girlfriend, Joanna and her friend, Nat. We went out to go paddleboarding. This is like years and years ago, probably mm, maybe six or seven years ago. And I fell off immediately, which I was glad I didn't bring my phone because they were like, I'm not going to fall off. I'll bring my phone. I was like, oh, maybe mm, I don't trust myself. I knew myself. So anyway, I tried it. I liked it. Didn't love it didn't do it again. I wasn't sure if I really liked it. Then my mom really wanted to try it and she came into town and so we went out and we did it. She loved it. Sean's sister loved it. So we've gone a couple of times, right? We've gone out to do this and I wasn't so sure at the beginning if I liked it or not. But I love being in the water and I love being able to jump in the water and now Sean and I every weekend, now it's cold so we won't be doing it now, but throughout the summer here in Austin we drove out like the 30 minutes to Lake Travis and paddleboarded. We even went down really close. We're, we're pretty close to Barton Springs. So we went down there and uh, paddled along the water there in Lake Austin. And I love paddleboarding. And I also love kayaking. And I thought I hated kayaking because I tried it once with Sean down in uh, Orange County once. And I thought it was horrible. Turns out I just didn't know what I was doing. And that's why it was so horrible. So anyways, long story short, try some new things. Be curious. If you don't if you aren't sure, try something again. And once we find something that we're like, you know, I think I like it, that's something that we'll build mastery in. And I think because we're coming into the winter, make sure it's something that can be done indoors, regardless of the weather, so that we can really get it going. Maybe it's a good time to try to uh, put together a really good playlist, or to work on music, or cooking, or you know, something that's indoors. I don't want you to think that you can only gain mastery in like um, things like playing an instrument or learning a foreign language. No, 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 no. These can be anything from like, I'm really good at putting together a menu for a party, or I'm really good at organizing this thing or that thing, or I'm also really good at cleaning out email. I don't even care what it is. I know it sounds silly, but I don't even care how silly it is. If it's something you kind of enjoy doing, you're like, this is kind of weird and like esoteric, but I'm going to do it. Keep doing it. So if something is just like not sucky and you're not really sure, try it again and again. And once you start to think, you know what, I've checked that feelings well and I feel good afterward. That's something that we want to build mastery in. We want to be something we enjoy. And again, you can change your mind. So let's say we're like, oh, I was going to get the best gravy for, because Thanksgiving's coming up or Christmas is coming up. I was going to, you know, I don't know, figure out how to make the best turkey gravy, but I'm like, I'm trying it. It's like my fourth go and I'm sick of it. Move on. Something else. Maybe let's try coloring next. I don't even know anything. Uh, Just finding something that you want to do, that you feel good doing, and you can change it all the time. Because even just the learning about that and getting better and then deciding to stop is all about learning about yourself and feeling better about yourself. It's It's all good. Okay? hope that makes sense. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Hi, Katie. Does attachment to your therapist always have to stem from childhood wounds? Good question. I'm really attached to my therapist, but I don't have any history of emotional abuse or neglect in my childhood. My mom was present and there for me my whole life up until my 20s a few years ago when she left and wasn't there for me. And that's when my therapist came into my life. Could this be the reason? Yes, it could. Even though I was an adult, of course, parents are very important in our life. I always hear you talk about this with emotional neglect and trying to have your therapist fill a void. But it doesn't seem to be the case for me. Any thoughts or advice? Says, also, I don't have any traits of BPD and I know that this can cause attachment issues. Yes, Mm -hmm. you are correct. Now, being attached to your therapist isn't in and of itself a bad thing. It's the level of attachment. We can feel connected. I'd like to use the word connected instead of attachment. We can feel connected to our therapist meaning that we feel like they see us, they hear us, they get us, and we look forward to seeing them, we want to see them, you know, each and every week, and it's something that we we feel like we need. That's all healthy and good and fine. When we're really attached to our therapist, it is usually because we're trying to fill a void in our life. Sure, most of the time it comes from some kind of childhood wound, meaning that it was either abuse or like a parent wasn't there for us in the way that we wanted or whatever, but not always. Again, everybody's going to be different. And the fact that your mom just kind of left a few years ago, I'm not sure of the whole context, obviously, but she's not there for you. And then your therapist came into your life. And I would, it's a very obvious it's obvious to me, I guess, that the timing of this is everything. We lost one of our main supports and another support came in around the same time. Of course, we're going to kind of like imprint onto the therapist. We're like, oh, you can fill the role as my mom, right? Especially when we're having a difficult time with our parent and we're trying to work through that, we can you know, want to like fix it by being like, okay, well, my therapist will fill that role now. I don't really have to fix that. And it's like a defense mechanism slash coping skill. And it's, it's common. So this could definitely be the reason I would dig into this with your therapist and be curious about it. Not judgmental. Everybody gets attached to their therapist. I think it's a very normal thing. It's about the level of it. But the fact that you're feeling really attached, I believe has something to do with your mom, you know, leaving and not being there. And then the therapist coming in it's all about that timing and losing your, one of your main supports. And, and I am very suspicious also just out of curiosity because your mom was very present, but I'm just like, how come she has left for a parent to just leave? I'm like, are we sure things were good when we were growing up? I, I just have, I would have questions about that because I don't know the whole story. So I don't really understand what would cause her to just all of a sudden leave now. But anyway, those are my thoughts. And I think your therapist is still filling that void, that void from your mom. And it, it. yes, you're an adult, but that doesn't make the pain any less. So, okay. Okay. The comment on this said, same. My therapist and I are very attached to each other and we both recognize this. Ooh, both. Re- oh, I don't have a history of any emotional neglect either. She's been such a role model for me in terms of a healthy relationship and is very supportive. It's a little muddy when your therapist is attached to you as well. And I would caution you against this. I don't, That sounds a little uh, like there aren't healthy boundaries in your therapeutic relationship. I'm very suspicious of this, not to throw, you know, shine a light onto something and make you feel concerned, but I would be concerned. I am concerned. Um, And to recognize it and to not refer you out. I feel like some boundaries been breached or there's some kind of uh, transference that you're putting because it's normal. Into therapy and your therapist isn't dealing with their own shit and they brought counter transference into this session which is why they're feeling attached to you that's not very healthy i'm just putting that out there i that that is not good okay um i know there's a thing called transference mm -hmm, in which it can be positive But I would still like to know if us being attached to each other is a bad thing. Should have read through the rest of the question before I gave my thoughts. But yes, I think that's a bad thing. Um, That's countertransference, meaning that your therapist is then reacting out of your transference in a way that is not therapeutically healthy. Now, sure, it can feel good to you, of course, because you're attached to them. And to know that they're attached to you, you're like, oh, I can fill that void. But that's the therapist's role is to not do that, is to help you understand where that void is coming from and help you fill it with things that you can rely on. Because the thing that kind of sucks, and I hate saying this, but I've had to say it multiple times, we cannot rely on other people to fill those voids. It's never going to work. People can uh, your therapist can retire, they can go on maternity leave, they can go on vacation for an extended period of time, something could happen to them. Their they're, they're therapists are not supposed to be an emotional support for the rest of your life all the time and be there for you. That's not how that works. We can only do that for ourselves by healing and working through whatever caused the void in the first place, sometimes trauma, emotional neglect, things like that. It is great to have a very supportive and understanding therapist. But again, that's a bad thing. And I hate to say it like that, but it's just the truth and I'm sorry. And someone said, as an add-on, if you think it's related, can an attachment to a teacher, uh, te- oh, to your therapist, teachers, etc., stem from an overprotective mother? Yes, it can go both ways. Could it be the case that you are so used to emotional participation and attention that you want it more and everywhere, not just at home? I know you said that our parents might have not given us the flavor of ice cream we wanted, but she literally gave me every flavor that I know of. And the only time she wasn't fully there for me was during uh, traumatic events because she was going through the exact same thing. I remember you once said the healthy attachment can be disrupted when there's a trauma and the primary giver cannot, pro- oh, that the primary caregiver cannot protect from. Could you talk more about this? Yes, I can talk a little bit more about this. Um, I think we can if we have overprotective or what I would call like helicopter parents, that can cause its own its own ish. And yes, it can be very similar because anything to extremes, like not enough or too much can cause us to connect to other people and want to fill maybe the void that we feel with that overprotective or uh, absent parent. Now, I know that people might be thinking, but the mom was there and like, she did everything and, and she, you know, was emotionally supportive or whatever. It was just overprotective. The the overprotective or uh, helicopter parent can actually be kind of traumatic and it doesn't allow for us to be very independent or to get to know who we are without someone telling us who we are all the time. It can also cause us to revolt, right? Kids can have overprotective parents and then go on to like rebel and do things that their parents would never let them do. Like I was just talking to a good friend of mine whose mom was super strict about food and that growing up like Um, she's lucky she doesn't have an eating disorder. I was was like, oh my God, thank God. But her mom was so weird about food all the time that when she would go to her friend's house, she would eat like everything. They called her the garbage disposal. She'd be like, any sugary candy? Don't mind if I do. Cookies? Yes, please. Pizza? You betcha. Because her mom would never allow for any of those quote unquote bad foods. By the way, all foods are good, just FYI. But anyways, um, when we have an overprotective parent, we can get an attachment to other therapists, teachers and other people who give us what we actually need, which isn't overprotection. It's actually emotional support. Just because a parent is like super overprotective and helicopter doesn't mean they're, they're meeting our needs. That means they're meeting their needs because they have high anxiety or, you know, uh, PTSD that they haven't managed. And so they're, they're like hypervigilant and overwhelming all the while still neglecting us. Does that make sense? I know I kind of took a long time to get to that point and I apologize, but. That's why it can happen. And I know we always think it's the neglect, but neglect looks a lot of different ways. It's not just that they're not there. They can be there and they can be doing all this stuff, but they're not asking us how we are because they're telling us how we are, or they're telling us what to do, or they're telling us we can't do things because it's too scary, you know, it's too much. And we can feel neglected in other ways. And so therefore, when we find a maybe a teacher at school who listens to us and asks us how we're feeling and doesn't pressure us to do one way or something one way or the other, we can be like, oh, this is exactly what I need. And we want to put that person in that void that we've been feeling from home. And so, yes, that's how that can happen. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Now final question and then it's just a fun one. It says hi Katie, happy belated birthday. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful birthday. Said can we get some pup dates? No questions for me really. Just want some Roxy news. Um now go take a vacation please. Now I just got back from vacation and it was lovely. Um it wasn't as vacationy as I would have liked cuz Sean still had to work so we didn't really do much and I still worked a lot a little, but it was just nice to not have a ton of calls and meetings all day like I normally do, so that was kind of nice. I didn't have to like write a bunch of videos and prepare all that stuff either. So that was all good. Um Roxy news. Okay, Roxy girl has started her training. She was assessed and it was funny they gave her like a little report card and Sean and I were like it's all the stuff we already know like she doesn't calm very easily she has a shitload of energy she wants to jump on new people if there are other dogs around she wants to know what they're up to and has to be over there so she has a really tough time focusing <laughs> so if we're working with her to like get her to sit stay you know come all that stuff we have to do it like in the house or in the backyard where she can't see or hear from any other animals um, because of even if a dog barks or in the backyard she's like she can't contain herself um so she's starting training and we're very excited about that um, overall she's good she's definitely gotten into things and like sean unfortunately had she like i don't know what it was she even got into but she threw up one night and we're like oh my god and i called the vet and they're like don't worry about it she's okay you know if it goes on for more than 24 hours and then she's always fine but little girl just you know she's a puppy she eats and gets into everything and i have no idea what it is and she finds stuff in the backyard i'm like where'd you even get this what is this um I'm like, what's in your mouth, right? She never wants to show me. But overall, we love her. She's adorable. And she's getting bigger every day. I, our vet thinks she'll be like 50, 60 pounds. We still don't really know what kind of dog she is. She kind of looks like a pit bully mix, but then also has some bull terrier look definitely like in her chest and just the, the size of her. So we'll see. But we love her very much. And she's super sweet. And she's definitely got a lot of personality. And she's very stubborn. But yeah, and I just, the only thing I'm kind of bummed about is we're going to Washington in December to visit my family, and we can't take her with us. I don't know how to fly with her. I don't want to put her in the cargo hold. That would break my heart. And oh, there she's she's like she knows I'm talking about her. Um, but since she's already she's already 40 pounds, by the way, um, she can't go under the seat. But I don't know if I can like buy it ticket for her. Anyway, I've had a tough time trying to figure out how to, so her old foster mom is going to take her for the week and she'll get to play with her doggos and their property. And that will be wonderful. So she's going to have a great time, but I'm just going to miss her. So it's more selfish than anything. And I don't know if she'd even want to fly. She might like freak out. It might be too much for Sean anyway, but, um, but yeah, we love her. She's great. And I try to put her on my Instagram stories and Instagram all the time. If you want more Roxy news. (laughs) Okay, everybody have a wonderful rest of your week. Have a wonderful weekend. Take care of yourselves. Remember, be curious, not judgmental about what's going on and we'll, we're all just learning about ourselves. Thank you for sending in your questions, and I'll see you next time. Bye. you more why your feelings hurt, you can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.